Right, well, my name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point Church, and we are uh, continuing today in a series that we've been in for a really long time, now 30 weeks, that's a long time for us anyway, to be in a series uh, through the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Roman churches. We've been working our way through this awesome letter since uh, back in September or October, and what I really like about going through books of the Bible and taking our time is that we end up talking about Quite a few issues that we might not normally talk about. Issues we might not think about on a regular basis, but they are still issues that are really important. And they're obviously important to God because he's written a lot about these issues in his word. And so we believe in, um, in teaching the whole counsel of God, which means for us that we're not always going to be going through books of the Bible, but we are going to be doing it regularly on a, on a normal, regular basis here at Crosspoint. And so... We are today going to talk about a really interesting issue that we started to unpack last week when you heard from John. He did a great job introducing the, the issue that we're going to spend some time unpacking again here today. Now, one of the things that I, I really like about or appreciate about the Bible is that uh, it's very realistic about people. The writers of the New Testament had a very realistic perspective about God's people in particular. And I know that there are quite a few times in the New Testament where, like the Apostle Paul, for example, he, 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 will, he will spend time uh, talking about these lofty, beautiful visions of God and His grace and His people and who we are now in Christ and talking about the power we have and our, the change that we've experienced through relationship with Jesus Christ. And... And so sometimes we read these, these grand theological statements and propositions about God's work through Jesus on the cross. It's like, wow, it just takes you to another, to another level. But very often, it's, it's almost the opposite. Um, the writers of the New Testament very often speak to God's people in a way that, it's almost like they're saying, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> Um, what's going on here? You guys need to wake up. I mean, why are you arguing about this? Why are you doing this? You know, it's time to, to live in a way that's consistent with your new identity in Jesus. And the picture we get of the church is, I think, a very realistic one in the New Testament. And especially there's, a, there's this one letter in the New Testament that this is more true of than any other. 1 Corinthians. Paul's letters to the Corinthian churches are, are, are extremely realistic. There's so many problems that they have as a church. There's divisions. There is unhealthy competition. There's politics. There's sexual immorality. There are people snubbing each other because of their status or social position. At 1 Corinthians 13, which we often refer to as the great chapter of love, you know, love is patient, love is kind, that's not supposed to be this beautiful piece of literature. That's actually an indictment of the people in Corinth. That's a way for Paul to say, wake up. You guys aren't loving each other the way that God's called you to. That's what that chapter is in the Bible for. It's written to real people in a real time in history who are being extremely unloving to one another. That's why we have 1 Corinthians 13. And by the way, that's why we have Romans chapter 14, which is what we're going to be looking at today. In, in the churches in Rome, you know, Paul hadn't been to Rome. He didn't plant these churches. But Paul knew people. He may not have met these people in particular, but he still knew people. He knew churches. He knew that churches 
are often struggling and vulnerable and weak and susceptible to all kinds of dangers and temptations. And that is why we have Romans chapter 13. It's a way for Paul to say, you guys need to, to love each other in a new kind of way. Clothe yourselves with love. That's what we have in, in uh, Romans chapter 14. Paul knows what's at stake and he, he knows the issues that we struggle with as churches. He knows that there's no such thing as a perfectly healthy church and a perfectly strong church where there are no problems at all. And so he, he writes chapters like this to us to remind us who we are and how we're supposed to treat one another. That's why we have Romans 14. And so I want to introduce again, as John did last week so well, just to remind you what the issue is that we're dealing with today, the subject that we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to put it to you in the form of a question. And here's the question. How are we to live and do relationships with others who love the Lord but do not embrace our lifestyle when that lifestyle is not sinful? Let me put it to you another way. What should you do when someone thinks that what you are doing is wrong but you are convinced it isn't? Let me put it to you another way. When you and another Christian disagree on what is right or wrong... How do you love each other in that situation? That's the question that Paul's writing to in in Romans chapter 14. You see, when there are issues that the Bible does not speak clearly to one way or the other, and there are lots of those, there will be tension, there will be friction, there will be irritation among Christians. There are all kinds of debatable issues that Christians disagree on. And we're going to highlight at least one of those today. And when those issues become the focal point, we run into trouble. Lines are drawn. Feelings get hurt. There's confusion. And the gospel moves from the spotlight or from the center out to the margins. That's what always happens when those issues take precedence. So the question is, how can we avoid this? How can we avoid that as Christians? How can we love people We disagree with on issues that are important to us, but on issues that in the end aren't really that important. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so why don't you follow along with me. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to look at the second half of the chapter from verses 13 to 23. And I'll have the words on the screen behind me as we read God's word. Romans 14 beginning in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything 
that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of God. Now I want to start, I just want to say something just to get your attention. And I'm not just saying this to get your attention, but I do think that this is one way to interpret what we just read. And it's this. If your behavior has never been brought into question by another Christian, it's probably because your faith is weak. If your behavior has never been brought into question by another Christian, it's probably because your faith is weak. And we're going to spend some time clarifying that as we go through the text this morning. So first of all, I know John did a great job last week introducing what's going on in the churches in Rome at this time. And I want to just bring you back up to speed as to what's going on. The issue here is food and drink. People can't seem to agree on what you should and shouldn't eat and what you should and shouldn't drink if you're a follower of Jesus. Okay? The Jews, there are, remember there are Jews and Gentiles in these churches. In almost every first century church. There are Jews and Gentiles. Two groups that were formally totally separated, but through the blood of Jesus have been brought together into this intimate relationship and union and fellowship. I mean, just, it was life-changing. It was changing the world around them to see these two different uh, social groups, religious groups, ethnic groups coming together and sharing meals together, doing life together, loving each other because of what this man Jesus did on the cross was amazing. It was changing the world. And yet they're disagreeing over matters of what you should eat and drink. Why is that? Well, for Jews, for Israelites, from thousands of years before, there was such a thing as clean and unclean foods. There were a lot of foods you could not eat. God said, do not eat such and such thing. In the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where we have the law given by God, it says that Jews were not, elite, were not allowed to eat any animal that had any blood in it. So you couldn't eat any meat that had any blood in it at all. All the, all the blood had to be drained out. I'm sorry to bring up uh, that, but that's one of the things that they could not eat. Also, they could not eat pigs, rabbits, and they could not eat the rock badger. I don't know what that's about, but they couldn't eat the rock badger and a couple other things too. Off limits to a Jew. Those foods were unclean. The food laws, so far as we know, were a way for God to show his people that they could not enter his presence as they were because they had to be cleansed. It was a way for God to set his people apart from all of the other different groups that existed during that time. It was a way for God to say, if you don't eat these things, it's a way for you to express your holiness or your devotion to me, in other words. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that all of that has changed. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ makes a person clean and acceptable before God. It has nothing to do with what you eat or drink. It's what Jesus has done on the cross and through his victory over death that makes you acceptable to God. It makes you clean. It makes you holy. It brings you into the presence of God. That's what Jesus said. Jesus declared all foods, all foods to be clean. So when a Jew comes to faith in Jesus... 
He can now eat whatever he wants to. He can drink whatever he wants to. Because his faith is in Jesus. And Jesus has made him acceptable to God. However, it's very difficult for a Jew and for anybody to change what they've been doing their whole life. Because remember, they've been eating this way their whole life. This was their diet. They don't know any other diet. And so to tell a Jew, hey, now you can eat anything, is not as easy as it sounds. Because their whole life they've been eating a certain diet. And honestly, it almost seems like for many Jews, they didn't want to change that. It would To them, to a Jew living in the first century following Jesus, many of them it felt it was still right to abstain from certain foods. It would have been wrong for them to eat those unclean foods, even though Christ said, this is clean. For them not to eat certain foods felt spiritual. It made them feel more acceptable to God and even more holy, I think. And Paul says, those Jews are weak. That's what he's saying. He say, he's saying, If this is what you're about, your faith is weak. It's not that their faith in Christ is weak. It's not that they're doubting whether or not Jesus is really the Son of God or whether or not Jesus' blood is enough to cover their sin. They are weak because they have not applied the teaching of the gospel to what Paul calls disputable matters. Disputable matters, in which this case is food and drink. So here the Jewish Christians are called weak because they are clinging to old traditions that are no longer necessary. Now if you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) Let me try to make a, a connection here. Let me just ask you, what deeply rooted beliefs or habits did you hold to before you trusted in Jesus or before you understood what the gospel means? What deeply rooted habits or traditions or lifestyle did Jesus change in your life? We've all had them. We've all had some kind of tradition or conviction or belief before we met Jesus. And, and once we come to faith in Jesus, something about that changes. For some of us, it was, it's music. I determined so long ago I wasn't going to listen to a certain kind of music. Or I wasn't going to dance. Or I wasn't going to see a certain kind of movie. Or that I would never drink. Or that I would stick to this sort of diet. Or that I would never wear that kind of clothing. Those are just some examples. In 1 Corinthians 8, we read about a similar situation in the churches there, where Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, are refusing to eat certain meats that had been offered to idols. This is what John talked about last week. Many of the Gentile believers were formerly idol worshipers. They would bring in animals to sacrifice to appease these pagan gods. That meat would then be sold in the marketplace. They even had banquet halls in some of these temples where people would eat. The meat that was left over after being sacrificed to idols. And many Gentile Christians felt in their heart, it was their conviction, that I I never want to have anything to do with that lifestyle again. Therefore, I'm never going to eat meat that was offered to an idol. But then there were Jews that were eating meats that were offered to idols. And now that they're Christians, these Gentile believers couldn't bring themselves to eat Meat offered to idols because for them it felt wrong. It would have violated their conscience. It would have made them feel dirty or ashamed or guilty or unclean. Do you know what Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 8? Weak. He calls them weak. 
So in one place, it's the Gentile, that's the non-Jewish Christians who are not getting the implications of the gospel. And in another place, it's the Jewish Christians who are not getting the implications of the gospel. The issue is the same, and here's the issue. How do you live and worship and serve with people who disagree with you about disputable matters? Have you ever encountered another Christian who disagreed with you about something, that whether it was right or wrong? Have you ever run into that? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Maybe it had to do with what you eat or what you drink or how much you drink. Maybe that's another matter. Maybe it had to do with what you wear, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, the music you listen to. I'll bet we've all encountered it at some point. That's what today's about. Here is what Paul says in First Corinthians, uh, I keep saying First Corinthians, in Romans 14, 13. Here's how he begins to solve this problem for us. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So the first thing we should do when we come across other Christians who disagree with us on what's right or wrong, here's the first thing we need to determine. I'm going to decide never to put an obstacle in the way of someone else's relationship with God. That's number one. I'm not going to judge them for what they do or what they don't do. Instead, I'm going to determine never to put an obstacle in the way of their relationship with God. So in other words, we have to understand that our actions and our words and our decisions affect other people. Sometimes we think that, hey, what I do is between me and God. (laughs) And I don't care what whoever this person thinks, if it's right or wrong. It's between me and God. But here Paul is saying, no, it's not between you and God. It's between you and the church, too. Your brothers and sisters who you are now related to through faith in Jesus Christ. You're a family. Therefore, what you do affects them. He's just building on what he had already said in, in Romans chapter 12. I think it might be helpful, though, to point out what this doesn't mean. And and to do that, I want to quote from one of the leading New Testament scholars, D.A. Carson. He's a research professor of New Testament at Trinity International University. This is what he says about this issue, about what this text is not talking about. This is what he says. Suppose you're a Christian who, owing to your cultural background, has always engaged in social drinking. Now you move into a circle that is more socially conservative. Some senior saint comes up to you and says, I have to tell you that I'm offended by your drinking. Paul tells us that if anyone is offended by what you do, you must stop it. I'm offended. You must therefore stop your drinking. How would you respond? This senior saint is simply manipulating you. He or she is not a person with a weak conscience who is in danger of tippling on the side because of your example, and thus wounding his weak conscience. Far from it. Far from it. That's D.A. Carson's take. In other words, a strong disciple of Jesus drinking in the presence of a conservative Christian who's already determined never to drink and who is offended by your drinking is not at all what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. That is not what's going on. The person uh, in this case is not tempted to drink by your drinking. You're not going to bring spiritual harm to that person If you drink in front of them, you may annoy them, you may make them upset, but you are not in danger of destroying them spiritually the way that Paul's talking about in Romans 14, okay? We should, okay, we should, however, according to verse 19, do what makes for peace 
and mutual encouragement. And that's important. So maybe you should put the drink down. Is, <laughs> okay, I'm just putting that out there. It's not always black and white, is it? The question is, what would you do if you loved them? That is the question. What would you do if you loved them? Because Paul says that many Christians are not walking in love when they ignore the weaker brother. They're not walking in love. Now here maybe is an example of what Paul could be talking about, on the other hand. Suppose you're a youth leader and some teenage Christians come over to your house for a cookout. Some of them have never drank before, probably most of them. Hopefully most of them. Hopefully all of them. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, (laughs) So, let's just assume none of them have drank, okay? Can I start over? Can I get a do-over there? Because they were raised in a home, some of them, where beer was not allowed in the house. But they see you drinking in your home, and now they want to drink. Because they see you doing it. Oh, that's cool. My youth leader drinks. And because they see you drinking, they go out of their way to get some beer and try it themselves against their conscience. That, my friends, is a sin. That's a sin for you if you're the youth leader. Do you know why? It's not because you drank. You are free to drink. Okay? It's the sin of unloving. That's what the problem is. You're not loving them. This is a sin of protecting your freedom and your rights instead of protecting your brother or sister in Christ. That's the sin. That destroys the work of God, Paul says. It undoes what God has been working on in their heart to make them more like Jesus. It causes them to violate their conscience in that situation. So... If your brother is grieved, this is what Paul says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Christ died for them to make them holy, to set them apart. That's what we need to remember. We need to remember the gospel in that situation. Here's a second scenario Paul probably doesn't have in mind. And this is, this is one we often talk about. In Christians, well, we sometimes talk about this in Christian circles. There's people gathered in a home, and drinking is going on, and let's assume they're mostly Christians, and some Christians would say, we shouldn't have any alcohol here because there may be someone who's a former alcoholic, and if they see us drinking, they may go on a binge. Have you ever heard that before? The weak person Paul is speaking of is not a former addict, they are not physically susceptible to certain vices. That's, I mean, of, certainly that's true of some people. I'm not ignoring that, but that's not who Paul has in mind here. They are spiritually weak because their conscience tells them it is wrong to drink. It has to do with their conscience, okay? The danger here is not that they may go get drunk. The danger is that they might have a drink without faith. Without faith. When they've already decided, I'm never going to drink. That's the danger. What does it mean to have a drink without faith. What does that even mean? Well, <clears throat> I was having a conversation with a good friend about this this last week, and he told me about another friend, a mutual friend, 
And he is, by who I would definitely call a very strong Christian, this guy. And he regularly enjoys a beer and a cigar. And you know what he does before he does that? With, with anyone who's with him, they say a prayer. Just like you might say a prayer to thank God for your food. He says a prayer to thank God for the beer and the cigar. And my friend was saying, you know, when he started doing that, I thought it was the strangest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but then I realized this is not strange. This is totally appropriate. If I'm about to enjoy this because it's, I believe it's a good gift from God, it is right for me to give thanks for it. And I actually think that is a good way to determine in your own life if you, if what you are doing, you are doing in faith. In other words, if you can thank God for that thing with a clear conscience, I believe that's a strong indicator that you're doing it in faith. So maybe you should start asking yourself, can I give thanks for this before I engage in it? If I was going to borrow your car, okay, let me give you an example. If I was going to borrow your car for something, are there any CDs that you would remove or hide? Why would you do that? Are you worried about offending me? Are you ashamed of that? <laughs> Listening to that music make you feel guilty. Do you think that me, do you think that I would be tempted to listen to that music and then feel guilty? I mean, those are questions we have to wrestle with. Um, you know, one thing I can't imagine anyone praying is God Thank you so much for this new Snoop Dogg album. It is so dope. Now, I don't know. Maybe some super strong Christian somewhere can pray that and listen to that music. I don't, I'm just saying, okay? There are some things that are just are not black and white. And I'm like, how could somebody? But, you know, the, there is no clear line, is there? There is no clear line. And so I think it's important for us to give thanks to God where, where faith is involved. I think that's a good indicator. So the, I think the point is, do not judge people you disagree with. Instead, protect them. It's okay to disagree with other Christians on a lot of things. The most important thing is to love them and protect them. Protect their faith. Protect their faith. The next thing that we need to do is agree on what really is important. We need to agree on what's really important and not, not all the disputable matters. We don't need to agree on those things. We need to agree on what's important. So here's what Paul says. He says, do not let what you regard as good, in verse 16, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You and I have to realize that our rights are not the most important thing. What we think is right and wrong is not the most important thing. Whatever the issue is that we are passionate about, it's not as important as we probably think it is. We must be willing to lay down our rights. Do you know why? Because the kingdom of God is not about music or food or drink or movies or clothing or any other disputable matters. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is about redemption. The kingdom of God is about rescuing people out of bondage, out of darkness, out of confusion, out of deception, and into the bright, glorious light of Jesus Christ, where we have freedom to love people and protect people and to live our lives the way Jesus intended from the very beginning as disciples of him 
who listen to him and obey his commands and who love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength and who love others before or as we love ourselves. Who love other people with all the passion and attention that we give ourselves. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And true freedom, if we understand it, is not the ability to do whatever you want, contrary to popular thinking. True freedom is the power to do what's best for your brother. That is what true freedom is about. That's what's most important. Your right to do what you want is not worth fighting for. You know what's worth fighting for? Your brothers and sisters. That's who's worth fighting for. You know, you know what's worth fighting for? The people you disagree with about whatever issue it is. That's who's worth fighting for. Are you willing to fight for them? Are you willing to protect them? Are you walking in love towards them? And, and here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. Genuine love protects the weak at the cost of freedom. That's what this is saying. That's what genuine love does. Genuine love protects the weak at the cost of your freedom. In Romans 14.1, we're going to go back. Romans 14.1, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then in 15.1, he says again, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That verse literally says, the strong should bear the weak. We should bear them up, hold them up, support them, love them, protect them. We are to welcome each other. We need to accept each other. You know what the temptation is? When you and I disagree with other Christians on disputable matters, and some other Christian comes along and questions your lifestyle or questions something you do, and there's a little friction there and a little irritation, do you know what our natural tendency is? It's to create space. Okay, well, they don't agree with what I'm doing, so I'm just going to create some space so I can do what I want to do without feeling guilty about it. Isn't that how we normally function and think and operate? That is not the way of Christ. Jesus says, (laughs) quite, quite the opposite, actually. Let them get closer. Welcome them. Accept them. Open your life up to them. Spend more time with them. Do you know why Jesus has put that person into your life? To strengthen your faith. To strengthen your faith. Welcome each other. Accept one another. We're going to talk more about that last week. In 1 Corinthians, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul goes on this, uh, this long kind of rant about all these rights that he has because people were questioning his lifestyle. They're questioning a lot of things about his life. Why aren't you married? Why don't you take... Um, why are you not taking an income from the church? Why this? Why that? And Paul says, I have the right to be married. I have the right to take... He, he didn't take an income from the church, by the way. He provided for himself most of the time. I have the right to take an income from the church. I have a right to drink wine. I have a right to eat meat that was offered to idols. He says all of that. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 8.13. If food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And then, and then again, a few verses later, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. He's talking about the right to take an income. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle 
in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, according to Paul, is what's at stake here. The kingdom of God is at stake. The good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we can experience life and peace and freedom with God is what matters here. So when people in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces, and in our cities see us, see Christians, arguing and debating and getting all tied up in knots over disputable matters— or they see us abusing our rights or flaunting our freedoms or judging other Christians who disagree with us, it causes them to doubt whether or not Jesus Christ is Lord. It causes them to question whether Jesus' death and resurrection really has any power to change our lives. I think is what he's saying. The world is, despite what the media is saying, that the church is irrelevant and that nobody really cares, the world is watching the church. When someone finds out you're a Christian, it's like a radar kind of is activated. And they begin to pay a little closer attention to your attitude and your words and your lifestyle and the way you talk about your friends and the things you do when you're around other Christians, the way you talk about your church, the way you parent, the way you talk about your spouse. And do you know why they pay closer attention? Because the enemy is hard at work to discredit your reputation. And more than that, to discredit the work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? And on the other hand, God, our Savior, is at work to redeem people through you. God is using you to call people out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. And God actually wants people to pay attention to you. He wants people to pay attention to us. And if we are walking in love towards one another, God has the power through your witness, through your actions, to save people. To rescue people from their sin. To utterly change their lives from the inside out. That's good news, my friends. That is such good news for us. That's good news for the world. And while this may seem like not that important of a subject, believe me, it is. It is because I've heard so many people who who want nothing to do with God say, you know what I can't stand about Christians? They're so divided on so many different things. You talk to one Christian and they say this about this thing, and you talk to another Christian and they say something totally different. So I don't want anything to do with that. And do you know what the point is for us? Here's what, it, here's what I think it boils down to. You and I need to be willing, if we love God and we love our brothers and sisters, to protect each other, even if it means laying down all your rights and freedoms. We need to be willing to protect each other at all costs because the kingdom of God depends on it. Let's pray. Our Father God, We thank you for your word that illuminates our hearts and minds. We thank you for the encouragement that you give us in the scriptures. We thank you, God, that you have called us together as your people, that every one of us was at one point your enemy, but through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been given new life. Through his resurrection and defeat of death, we've been given eternal life in you, God. 
We have been given hope for a future. We have been given a new perspective, a new worldview, a new freedom. And we want to be careful, God, as your people, not to abuse that, but to use our freedom to love our brothers and sisters, to use our freedom to call people out of darkness into your marvelous light. So change our hearts today, God. Take our attention off of those matters that that we sometimes get passionate about, the things that aren't really that important, and remind us today who you are. Remind us what Jesus has done and, and how much we have to be thankful for, how much we have in common, and help us to celebrate that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for being here today with us. Um, if I haven't met you before, if you're a guest with us, um, I would love it if you would take just a minute. Uh, I'll be up by the welcome table, just out the door there to the left. I'd love the opportunity to meet you before you leave today. Before I let you go, please bow your heads for the benediction. From Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.